You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning and welcome to our Sunday gathering. My name is Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. And it is so good to be with you this morning. Um, Such an honor to proclaim God's word. If you're new with us, we want to welcome you. In fact, if you're a long timer with us, we welcome you as, as well. And we want you to know that when, we, when you come into a church gathering, especially as a new person, it can be a little bit intimidating. You can kind of look around and assume that maybe everyone else has it together, or maybe you're the judgy type and you think they don't have it together. But whatever you're bringing in here this morning, we truly believe that when we gather around God's Word, um, that He meets with us, and He feeds and He nourishes us. And so we're not here to impress We're not here to try to provide an experience. We're here to take us to God's word uh, through all the elements of our gathering so that Jesus would meet with us, his people, this morning. So we believe that God has something for you this morning, and there's a reason that he's brought you here. We are currently working through the gospel of Mark, and last week, Pastor Jordan walked us through Mark 9, uh, 2 through 13, and in that text... Jesus takes a couple of disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain with him, and upon the mountain, Jesus is transfigured, which uh, very simply, well, there's no simplicity to that, but very plainly means that, that his glory was unveiled, that what was typically hidden by his flesh and his incarnation was peeled back, and the disciples that were there, they saw into the heavenly reality of who Jesus was. It's this beautiful, glorious scene where Moses and Elijah are there and God pronounces, this is my beloved son. The disciples hear it and and they're told by Jesus, don't say anything until the resurrection. They're probably like, no, okay, we don't even know what to say. So they have this beautiful, glorious mountaintop experience. The true identity of Jesus is shown. And today we're picking up in verse 14 and very quickly... Our text is going to bring us down from this mountaintop glorious experience to the sobering reality of a suffering age. It's going to bring us right into the difficulty and the darkness of this present evil age where sin and death are still on the loose. And our story is going to center around the healing of a young boy who had long suffered from demonic oppression and all sorts of health-related issues. But I think what is most significant in this text is going to be what it teaches us, those who would try to follow after Jesus, what it teaches us about faith, prayer, and following Jesus in a broken world. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come into your presence this morning in need of grace. Our faith is often weak. Our faith is often wavering, and we ask that your Holy Spirit, through your word, would strengthen us. I pray that whatever each individual is going through, you would minister to them in their uh, inner being this morning. You would strengthen us with the love of Christ. We would see the grace that meets our need. And Lord, give us a faith that endures, that clings to Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. 
Well, let's start reading in verse 14. We'll read 14 through 18 and then stop and talk about it a bit. And when they, and when they, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Stop there for just a minute. Once again, in Mark's gospel, we have a large crowd gathered around. Now this time, they're not gathered around Jesus at the beginning. They're gathered around the disciples, the kind of the leftover disciples who didn't get to go on the field trip to the transfiguration, okay? So we don't want to call them the B team, but it might be the B team. Um, They're gathered around these disciples, and uh, perhaps Jesus and, and James and Peter and John, they're making their way back, and yet this crowd of other disciples, or this crowd with the disciples, is, is getting embarrassed. This, we learn that there was a man who brought his son to them to heal this, uh, this boy who was uh, ravaged by sin and death, and, and they couldn't do it. Even so that the scribes are like, are, they're like mocking them and starting to argue with them and cause this scene. They're, they're getting embarrassed at their lack of power. Now, to be fair, from what we read in this text, it sounds like this boy's condition was not the easiest fix. Um, This young boy's life tragically was ravaged by demonic forces. The best of us would be overwhelmed by such an encounter. I mean, and in some ways, I kind of got to give them credit, at least they tried something, right? We don't get a lot of detail on what they did, uh, perhaps they, they tried to mimic what they'd seen Jesus do in the past. Perhaps they tried to do you know, some sort of you know, random thing you do on the spot. But they tried something to heal. Nevertheless, it failed. You see, these disciples' faith was there, but it was not yet full. It was not yet mature. It was weak and immature. And we, when we read things like this in Scripture, sometimes we're prone to kind of judge the disciples like, those idiots, those numbskulls, right? Um, And yet, I would encourage you when you read examples like this, rather than judging the disciples, let humility cause us to see them as a mirror to our own struggles and our own faith. I mean, I've encountered much less intimidating situations in my decade plus of ministry and and done much worse or, 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 or fared much worse than they did in this situation, right? Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who is going through a problem or they face something and you just feel powerless? You don't know what to do. You have really nothing to offer. You're like, maybe I should, but I don't know what to do, what to say. We know this feeling of powerlessness. We've all faced problems in front of us that feel overwhelming. And when we encounter problems that we can't easily fix, it often reveals something about our faith. In this case, it shows the disciples lacked the spiritual power in themselves to heal. And this is a problem, Jesus mentions when he addresses them in the next verse, because he's not going to be with them much longer. 
Right? Think, we know the rest of the story. We know that as a part of the apostolic church, we too are confronted with this problem of powerlessness. We know that Jesus was not going to be on earth forever, but he was going to establish a church. And what's going to happen with all these disciples who, what are we going to do with these issues, right? With Jesus gone. On our own, we feel powerless in the face of significant problems of life. Right? How do we live on mission and extend the healing rule of Christ knowing just how weak we are? How do you love your neighbor who's going through the difficulty of divorce or a wayward child or a, a chronic d- disease diagnosis when, when, when you feel powerless? You don't know what to do. How do you love your child who's struggling with anxiety or perhaps they're struggling with their faith and and you you just can't control it. You can't just snap and make things happen. How do you keep opening your heart to people when friends keep moving and neighbors don't receive the gospel after you've planted seeds and, and people keep <laughs> dividing over what seems like nothing? Like, right, how do, how do we keep on being the church when we know through experience just how powerless we are? Where do we turn when we come up against the immovable barriers in this life? Well, there's two ways I think I see in my own heart and in others, that we tend to respond to this dynamic when we face these problems, when we face these seemingly immovable obstacles. And my, my terms are kind of cheesy, but forgive me, you know. But there's two things. There's superhuman faith and there's cynical faith. Superhuman faith and cynical faith. First, I think we try to deal with this dynamic of feeling powerless in the face of evil or adversity with superhuman faith. Superhuman faith says that the disciples in this scene, it's B-team disciples, they just weren't quite radical enough. Um, later, they, they, would, they would get it together and they'd pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and they would become better disciples. But, um, but really, it's just a, it was a lack of their faith. They weren't strong enough. You see, superhuman faith requires us to work ourselves up to live by the strictest disciplines, and hopefully we can impress God enough so that He will come through and do what is needed. Superhuman faith loves the last part of our text, the last verse that we'll get to eventually, which says that this kind of evil is only driven out by prayer, and and later there was even so many uh, kind of that, that thought that wasn't even enough, they added fasting in some translations in other parts of the gospel. And they take these beautiful things that Jesus had said and they kind of make them this performance about us working up this power within ourselves to make things happen. I'm going to be a super Christian. I'm going to be a radical Christian. You see, superhuman faith is pick yourself up by the bootstraps. It's get better. It's overcome the frailty and weakness of your human nature. It keeps us on the treadmill of needing constant improvement. It's never quite rigorous enough. And tragically, with superhuman faith, when we have success or when we fail, it reflects back on us, right? We look at these disciples and we say, well, they couldn't do it because they didn't have strong enough faith. They just weren't good enough. Maybe for you, if you're living in superhuman faith, you you, you didn't get the miracle that you were hoping for. And you look back and you say, well, if only I'd had more faith. If only I was better. Maybe then God would come through. And the the sad thing is we can only keep the mask 
of having it together so long, but over time, our continually trying to do in our own powers, even at times for God, in our own resources, proves impotent towards the real evil in our world. Superhuman faith might pray, but this kind of prayer even becomes just a way of working oneself up, commanding God on our terms, and sustaining this puffed-up image we project. Superhuman faith leans on our ability to do in our own power. Now, the second way we might respond is kind of the opposite of this. It's we might deal with our lack of power with what I would call cynical faith. Perhaps we tried superhuman faith, right? I think maybe this is what teenagers do when they come back from camp. I know there was a time where I came back from church camp and I literally kind of tried to believe, I think, uh, that's my skeptical side, but, but that, that my whole school would be saved if I just pray, pray for it enough and just kind of believe hard enough that God was going to save every person in my school. Not a bad aim, <laughs> but a little bit of superhuman faith. And some of us have maybe gone through times where we've kind of been around and exposed to this superhuman kind of faith, and it just didn't work. It didn't happen. Didn't cure the sickness. Didn't come through with a job. Didn't provide the wealth maybe that it promised. See, many people have, we've prayed for over the years, it seems at times that God didn't answer our prayers. You see, cynical faith has realized the emptiness and powerlessness of human beings, and yet is increasingly doubtful that God will work redemptively in the world. There's an element of self-protection to cynical faith that we've kind of put ourselves out there and we felt like God didn't come through. And now, rather than continuing to hope and pray and plead, we kind of draw back and we go into this little prison of cynicism. And we start to camp out in the land that is safe and yet joyless. You know your heart has drifted here when you hear about perhaps a friend going through something or you're facing something and, and you might hear someone else say, hey, let's pray for that. And you, in your kind of cynical heart, go, why even bother? Why even bother? You see, both of these responses in their own way lead us to a prayerless response. The superhero doesn't look in dependence in their weakness to God to be strong, but tries to become some superhero of the faith. The cynic says, why even bother God? Is he even going to do anything? Can he even do anything? Now, in our text, if anyone in the story is primed to struggle with cynical faith, it's certainly the father of the demon-possessed child. Um... I've not had a child with chronic illness, uh, but, but I've watched my kids go through short bouts of illness. And if you're a parent, you know how difficult it is to see your toddler with that 104 fever. I can imagine that this father whose son has chronic, I mean, extreme illness is living in, a, in a, what feels like hell on earth. And here's the thing about children. 
with a child, there, there's no cutting our, our hearts off from our children. There's no, no you, you can do that in other relationships. It's, it's not healthy, but you can do that. It's, it's really difficult to cut yourself off to the, to the pain of seeing a child suffer. I think it's why in, in our culture, some of the most faith and gut-riching things are when we see the suffering of children, whether it's pictures in a war, and, and certainly all pictures should lead us to compassion and, and suffering, but when you see a child suffering, it hits you here, it hits you deep. It, it says something deep within your soul that this is not right. This is not the way the world should be. And if anyone is prone to become cynical, it's this father of this child who has suffered seizures and been, I mean, this, this demonic spirit drowning and putting in, I mean, it, it sounds like he's living in hell on earth. And in this soil, it's understandable how cynicism could grow, how hope and redemption feel impossible. Maybe they even feel foolish. See, church family, on the one hand, we can understand and sympathize with why the disciples, why this father would tend to drift in one of these directions. It's not easy to believe in a God we cannot see. And when you throw in all the things and, and, the, and the pains of, this, of sin and death in the world around us, it's easy to doubt that he rules and he reigns and that he cares. That he's going to do something. Right? We want to run to respond to either we got to take it up ourselves and become the superhero or we're just going to be cynical and jaded, kind of wall ourselves up. Look at Jesus' response to the disciples. Let's read the rest of the text. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. When they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know, growing up, I often interpreted Jesus' response there in verse 19 in that superhuman lens. Right? Like you, you can take what he says there and think, okay, well, gee, there you go. Jesus said it. If we just had enough faith, all things are possible, right? Like right now, football season's about to start. There's some football teams out there with a little Christianity mixed in. And, you know, hey guys, I know we're terrible, but all things are possible, right? 
Nobody else knows that? Okay. Maybe that's Philippians 4.13. Okay. Um, I think there's this mindset we can get into of superhero faith where we're always thinking that anything Jesus said is read through the lens of we're just never quite enough, right? We're never quite, uh, uh, we're never quite doing enough. We're, we're, we're hearing this from Marx with disgust and is shaking a disappointing head, you know. Um, and while Jesus is certainly burdened by the faithlessness of the world and the faithlessness of this whole mess, he's not speaking with disgust to his disciples. He's not looking at them like disappointed like the manager that left the employees and, they, and the store turns to chaos and when he, they come back, like, aren't you, can't you idiots get it together? He's not looking at them like that. He doesn't say, guys, get it together. Go figure it out. I'm going to be gone soon. Who's going to take care of you when I'm gone? Anybody having you know, reminis- uh, memories of when they were 17, 18, about to leave the house? Who's going to clean up your room when, I'm, you know, when you're not here anymore? Sorry, no, no offense, Mom. Mom, she didn't say that. My mom's here. I love the last line of Jesus in verse 19. I think there's something to this. Jesus says, bring him to me. Perhaps the thing that the disciples missed was that they failed to come to Jesus with their needs. They tried in some sense to do this in their own power but they got exposed. And the problem is not their ability to perform, but their failure to recognize their need for Jesus' presence. Bring Him to me. Surprisingly in our text, it's the Father who's long suffered with His Son and His illness that begins to serve as a model for faith for us. If anyone would be cynical, perhaps even angry and bitter and closed off at the possibility of redemption, it's this man. And certainly this man does not come perfectly to Jesus, right? We see that in the text. He's not coming having all his theological ducks in a row. In fact, in verse 22, he kind of insults Jesus a little bit. He says, if you can do anything. I love Jesus' response. Jesus is like, if I can do anything? All things are possible for the one who believes. See, ultimately, there's only one whose faith is strong enough, and that is Jesus. The problem with superhero faith is that it assumes we should become Jesus, that we too and and can be him and we should be him and, and, and it puts us in this place of becoming the salvific figure of our lives and the lives of those around us. It puts us in a central role of God's redemptive drama and I want to give you the good news this morning that you can't be Jesus. Say it with me. I'm not the Messiah. Can you say it with me? I'm not the Messiah. <laughs> you don't have the power to save anyone, not even yourself. You're not the central figure in God's plan. The salvation of the world is not riding on you and on me. It's not us. Let this humble us. 
Let it at the same time release you from the pressure of feeling like you need to be the Savior. And I love this next part of the text. The man who is broken, who is so tired, you have to know a lifetime of, of him struggling with this child had to, had to weary him. He's so desperate. He's not even completely sure. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, humbled by years of suffering, but somehow not yet hardened to the possibility of hope. The father isn't there working up enough faith, trying to become good enough so that his son could be healed, but he brings what he has, his frail, fleeting, immature, feeble faith, but he comes to Jesus. He comes to him. And Jesus heals the son. Essentially, to summarize it, raising him from the chains of death itself. Now, interestingly, when Jesus heals, this is a whole other sermon for another time, so I can't go there, but it looks like it's actually causing more damage before it gets better. Do you notice that in the text? The boy, he, he heals him, and the boy falls in what looks like a dead-like state. And then Jesus goes and lifts him up. That's a, I don't have time to go there this morning, but I'd love to. If maybe afterwards we could do a second uh, session. Um, Jesus heals the son. And this father shows us a kind of faith that is humble, that is sober-minded, that is aware of one's weakness and limitations. It's not impressive in a religious sense. And yet, however unlikely, it's a faith that goes to Jesus, the one who has power. It's good news for people like us that God doesn't want you or ask of you to have superhero faith. And neither does God want you to harden your heart and wall it off and become a cynic and a skeptic and, and to try to protect yourself from any pain, just, be, just live a joyless existence, a hopeless existence. What God wants is an enduring faith. You see, enduring faith honors the tension of the already and the not yet. We use this term sometimes. Enduring faith honors the tension that, that Jesus and the kingdom of God has come, and yet there's a fullness that's not yet here. It's not demanding now but it does cause us to plead. Enduring faith is deeply convinced of what Jesus has ushered in. It's open that Jesus will and can give us a foretaste in the now, but its deepest conviction is that one day it will happen in full. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle or doubt. We do take the pain of this age seriously. We do honestly say that suffering and sin and hardship is hard and it's difficult and it's even confusing to us at times. But we keep coming back. We keep coming to the gracious presence of Christ. This is enduring faith. We come when we're weeping, we come when we're celebrating. 
We come when we're weak. We come like the Father saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. Enduring faith is not based on our ability to gut it out or overcome anything in our path. It's about recognizing our deep need and Jesus' saving power. And though trials come, and hear this, though His power does not always show up when we want it to, how we want it to, we still proclaim He is powerful. We still trust that if He does not choose to heal and and work in this moment, that there is a moment where fullness is coming. Our faith endures with a stubborn refusal to go anywhere else when we face problems and trials and obstacles. We keep going to Jesus. And He is truly the one who had perfect faith, who believed His Father such to the point that He entrusted Himself to death, who died and was buried for all our waywardness and, and, and wickedness, he took the punishment of our sin. He was raised up on the third day to newness of life. And, and listen to this. Here's what anchors our enduring faith. When he arose again and resurrected, the text tells us in Acts that he ascended into heaven, where he's now seated at the right hand of all power and authority. And when he, when he ascended, he poured out his Holy Spirit into his holy church. And he gave us access to his presence through prayer. You see, we can keep coming to Jesus because he's promised not to leave us, but he's given us his Holy Spirit. You don't have to face the problems alone that you face. Right where you are, you can pray. You can say, Jesus, be near. Jesus, help me. Jesus, remind me. We have access to power. You see, the Christian story is not that we become superheroes. I'm, I'm almost 40, and, I'm, and, I, and, and my flesh is telling me constantly, you should be better than you are. Like, I thought you'd be further along by now. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life, if there is growth, and there certainly should be, is more and more recognizing the depth of our need for Jesus' presence. Do you see that's the issue? That's the problem with the whole thing. We need His presence and power because we are not Him. We can't even live apart from Him. And we have that access, church, through the Holy Spirit that whatever we face, we can go to Him in prayer. Does that mean that God's going to show up and fix every situation like that? It doesn't. But even when that happens, we keep going to Him. Even when we face doubt, we say, help our unbelief. We keep coming to Jesus. So let me just send us out with this encouragement from this text. Keep going to him in prayer. Some of you right now are struggling with cynicism. You're feeling that voice that says, He's not, God's not going to do anything. Keep taking that child to him in prayer. Keep taking that relationship that you long to be restored to him in prayer. 
Keep enduring in your faith. Not looking or demanding results, but also being open to the possibility that he might just break open the the heavens into the earth right now and do something miraculous. Because we believe he can. You see that? You You see the tension we're called to navigate with our faith? Not demanding that heaven is now, but also open to the fact that sometimes the Father's so good, he just pours out a healing. He pours out a restored relationship. He didn't have to, but he did. And he can keep going to him. Our passage ends in verse 29 with an encouragement to pray. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep going after Jesus. Keep going to him in prayer. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, there there are some here who I know are just exhausted by trying to be the hero of their story. They've been trying to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders, Lord Jesus. And as you do, would you just gently remind them this morning that you're not asking them to do that. Lord, would you remind them of their weakness and your sufficiency? Lord, there are others here who their heart has grown cynical. Even maybe roots of bitterness have have welled up in their hearts. And And I pray in your tender mercy as one who has compassion on sinners, would you help us to hope again? Would you help us to believe the words of Jesus that for the one who believes all things are possible? That redemption, not just of this boy, but of the entire cosmos is possible because of Jesus. And it is not only possible, it is certain Strengthen us in this present moment. Lead us to come to you, Jesus. You are our deepest need. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.